He just did what this man said, and God instantly healed him. It was a great, great thing. Imagine you being lame for 38 years, then all of a sudden some stranger walks into your life and says, walk, and you can walk. Well, uh, he shared with the religious leaders eventually about this great healing. They had one question. When did it take place? When did it take place? And said the Sabbath. They had written 39 different laws on top of Moses' rabbinic tradition of ridiculous nature of what you could do on the Sabbath. And I told you last week, they had a law that if you spit on a rock, that's okay. But if you spit on the ground, that's irrigation. So you had to be careful where you spit on the Sabbath. And some ridiculous things. And so here, this child of Abraham is uh, being uprooted because he dared to get well on the Sabbath. So they go looking for Jesus, come to verse 17, and, they, and Jesus says, hey, my father's been working uh, on the Sabbath for years, and so I work. Now they pick up another offense. You call God your father. And they understood him to be claiming he was equal with God. Now, Christ could have saved himself a lot of hassle if he would have just quickly said, you misunderstand me. No, no, you don't get it. You miss it. He didn't do that. Let me say something to you about this term son. When we use son uh, in the Western world, we think of procreation, propagation, next in line. But the Semitic use of the word usually meant sameness of nature. Sameness of nature. You remember when they said of Christ, you are son of Belial. What are they saying? Uh, Satan and demons don't have baby boys. Saying, you share in the nature of Satan. You share. Even when you remember Saul, when he was upset with uh, Jonathan for being a friend to David, he said, you're the son of a perverse woman. What did he mean by that? You're partaking of the nature of a bad woman. We use the same thing today when we use the explicative and we say you're a son of, and it's usually a bad thing. What we're really saying is you're as bad as the one I say you're related to. You've got the same nature, the same character. Christ says, God is my Father. Yes, I'm claiming likeness and oneness and in essence to the Father. Well, then we begin this remarkable Christological defense of who he is. Now, let me read just to give you the flow. We're going to look at verses 24 to 30, but I want you to get the flow from verse 16. So Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but was even calling himself God, his own father, making himself equal with God. 
This is what he says in John 10.30. I and my Father are one thing. This is what happens in John 19, that they tell Pilate, we kill him not for miracles, but for blasphemy. For he called God his Father, making himself equal. Christ happens to be God the Son. He's ever been as much God as the Holy Spirit or the Father. Do you understand that? If you don't, you're not Christian. Unitarians believe in God, but not in a Christ who is deity. Islam believes in Allah, but not in a son who could be God. Present-day Judaism, right on, believes in God, one God. Hear, O Israel, we believe in one God, but this Messiah Jesus claim is not deity. There's the offense. There's the offense. Get, get rid of all this God talk that is absolutely laden with a lot of garbage. Everybody wants to talk about God, but the offense is talking about Jesus Christ. That is where you can get killed. That's where you can get persecuted. Now he goes on. Listen to what he says. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. Uh, try that. Try to duplicate the father. The father's creating. Christ also involved in creation. Whatever the father can do, the son can do. That's a great claim. Remarkable claim. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. The father keeps no secrets from the son. Everything he's about, he has disclosed. He keeps on. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. He, I'm a life giver. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who honors, he who does not honor the Son, he who honors the Father will honor the Son. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I meet with a man, I believe in God. You do. What do you think of Christ? He's a joke. He's a... Um, uh, an imposter, a false messiah. You can't honor God the Father and call God the Father's word about his son a lie. So all the God talk, demons are full of God talk. They even tremble at the, there are no demons that are atheists. They wish they could believe it. Christ had to hush them up continually about to just blowing the disguise and telling the audience, this is the Son of God. And he would command them to be quiet. Now, I want to pick up from verse 24 to 30, four things about Christ that you want to remember. Four things. Number one, he gives, he is the giver of eternal life. Two, he is the only one that can save you from judgment. Three, he will be the appointed judge. And four, he himself will be the source 
of physical resurrection out of the grave. And that was seen to be the exclusive right of the Father until this passage. Christ himself will begin a resurrection program beginning with himself that will result in the physical resurrection of every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever existed. This is some claim. Number one, let's look. Christ can give eternal life. Verse 24, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And that is a present tense in the Greek. He is having eternal life. You don't die to get eternal life. You get eternal life the moment you hear the voice of Christ speak to your heart and you believe it. It is evidence that you have already received eternal life. And this life is a present possession that goes on forever. There's a problem, though. How does God find us when he comes to us? Does he find us alive or dead? For you are dead in your sins and your trespasses, Ephesians 2.1. How does a dead man ever hear? How does a dead man ever get to believe? He says in the verse, God does a quickening work, made alive. Ephesians 2.1, he made you alive who were dead. Verse 5, 2, 5, he hath he made alive. Titus says, the Spirit of God regenerated you. And what does regenerate? It's to make alive, to beget again. And so I understand God gives me the life, and the evidence I've got the life is I begin to hear him, and I begin to believe him. If he doesn't help the corpse, the corpse can't do anything. And so in salvation, you find that God had to do a work of grace on your heart before you even knew what to believe, what voice to hear, and the work of the Spirit was convicting you, wooing you, drawing you. Uh, we just taught 185 kids at Vacation Bible School, planting the seed, planting the seed, and what happens in time, Christ speaks, come to me. And finally you hear it. Finally you get it. My lands, I've been sitting in church ever since I was conceived. And I hated it for 14 years. I like the music. I love my aunts and uncles. And I love my folks. But when you're a criminal, you don't want to go to a police station. And when you're a sinner that doesn't want Christ, you don't want to go to church, Jewish or Gentile. Because I grew up in church, they knew the temperature of hell every week. They give you the latest readings. <laughs> you didn't go there and got pampered. You, this is the 50s, you remember. We used to believe things were absolute then. We, we, we couldn't even spell postmodern. Truth was truth, and one thing I got from church, you're guilty, you're lost, and you got it coming. And you don't want Jesus because you got to give up rock and roll, girlfriends, and you can't get high on aspirin. That's what we used in the 50s. But, 
spot. One week in June of 58, I finally heard the shepherd's voice say something besides you're condemned. I heard him say, come to me and I will give you life. Come to me. I'm going to make you my own. Come to me. And who in the world could give me new life? Christ says in verse 24, whoever hears my word, and in John 10, he says the only ones who ever hear his word are his sheep. My sheep hear me and they follow me. If you claim to be a sheep and you're not following, you are deceived, you're mixed up. Sheep follow the shepherd. They don't take a course on following. They just want to follow. They, that is just something, we call it the new birth. I get a new set of desires. I get a new uh, sense of direction. God really changes me. It's not I take a membership class, I get dipped in some water, and I start tithing. No, something in me happens when I hear Christ say, come, become my own. Christ has the authority to give you eternal life, and this is a spiritual kind of resurrection. He says, and secondly, he who gets this eternal life will not be judged, some translated condemned. The idea is to be judged and found guilty. I don't mind being judged as long as I'm not guilty. Have you ever been falsely accused? When I first told my dad I wanted to be a preacher, I was just a kid. I didn't know what I was saying. He knew far more than I did. And he said to me, um, I, thought he'd be, I thought he'd throw a party. He wasn't real enthused about it. And uh, he said, well... Son, uh, you can make it if you can live with three things. And I said, Dad, you haven't said you're glad. He didn't go there. He said, can you live with three things? And I said, what's that? He said, can you live with being falsely accused? I'm only a 15-year-old boy announcing my calling. Falsely accused, misunderstood, and unappreciated, and controversial. We'll put that. But he only said three. Can you live with being falsely accused? Well, well who would accuse me? He said, you'll find out. Unappreciated. Misunderstood. My problem is too many of you have understood what I said, and I said that which made you uncomfortable. But it's terrible to be misunderstood when you're blunt anyway. And that was quite a prophetic thing. But it's another thing to be accused and you're guilty. And nobody knows it but you and God and the party you sinned against. And it's your word against their word. Oh, it's wrong. And under the law, we couldn't even sentence you if we couldn't produce two witnesses. So you might be as guilty as anything else but if the person that you sinned against or, or who's accusing you can prove their case, or hey, it's a, it's a draw. But Christ said, I am the only one that can keep you from coming to the end of your life 
and standing before God in court and not find you guilty. And this is the theme of Romans. How do I enter into the courtroom with God under the accusations that I'm a lawbreaker, that I'm a trespasser, that I've sinned in many ways? How can I ever imagine coming before God and God saying, not guilty? Jesus Christ said, if you come to me, we'll settle the case out of court. And for everyone who puts faith in Christ, the judgment and sentence for their sin is past tense. For everyone who does not come to Christ, their judgment is future tense, and there won't be any lawyers allowed. You're on your own, and by the very fact you come before the judge who is omniscient and knows everything about us, there's not a chance in a billion you will escape. So you've got a choice. Will I accept what Christ did for me in my stead back here and accept the work of Christ on behalf of us guilty sinners? Or will I say, I will trust myself. I don't need this man. I don't need his offer. And I'll take my chances. He said, come to me and I will eliminate divine judgment, divine wrath, divine uh, accountability for all that you've done. Let me tell you one of the most remarkable things about being a believer in Yeshua is all my judgment from God is past tense. If you were in a shouting church, you'd shout, you quiet Baptist. That's enough to make you shout. That's what Pentecostals got happy over that you've been talked out of. Your judgment is past. There's no judgment for me in the future. None for you. No condemnation. And condemnation in Romans 8.1 is katakrima. No verdict against you that stands. My folks moved here from El Dorado, Kansas. And let me tell you something about the prairie states. Uh, in my folks' day, my early 1900s, uh, they came out here. Uh, they didn't have fire departments in the middle of all those cornfields and wheat fields. They didn't have, guess what they had to learn to do? And they did it from the 1800s on. They learned to backfire. They still do it in the Forest Service. And when those winds are sweeping across Kansas and across those states, they would just learn to backfire. And the only way you could save the house, the only way you could save the farm is start a fire that would burn into the other one. And pretty soon, sometimes you'd burn off all the place around you, and as the approaching winds and fire came, it would stop at your place because you'd already burn off all the wheat. You'd burn off everything that could burn. Join Christ at the cross and it's burn off ground for the judgment of God has already swept over it. And when you put faith in Jesus Christ, faith in him says judgment forever is in my past 
And when Satan accuses me about my sins, I do what Luther did often. Luther would point to a crucifix in his prayer room, and he would say, Satan, there's my sin. Look him up. He bore it. He paid for it. Look him up. If there's any underpayment, I charge it to the cross. Are you aware that you'll never come under condemnation? It was weird when I first got saved because I was in groups that being saved was on probation because you never knew if you'd make it. You got saved, and then you worried yourself uh, sick because you didn't know if you were going to lose it or not. That wasn't much of a salvation. It was just my way to a nervous breakdown. I got saved to probation. I thought, well, God, why start with something you already know is a wretched sinner? I, I didn't say I could save myself. I didn't say I could keep myself. Now, if you can't do it, why did you sign up? I finally cast my hope on that verse that says, now unto him that's able to keep you. And the him there isn't you, honey. The him is outside of you. John 10, I can keep anything I get in my grip. I can keep you. Salvation is not probation. You just live it out because you got the real thing. You know, I don't care what label Christian you happen to grow up around. I don't, I, I've been around all kinds of believers. I went to so many different schools, different Mennonites, free will Baptists, uh, regular Baptists, irregular Baptists. Uh, you know, it, it didn't matter. I, I've been around all kinds of groups, Pentecostal people. And guess what? The ones who ever met him are still continuing with him in spite of their label and in spite of their theology. Because sheep just follow. They don't got to get all their labels right, but I'll tell you right now, eternal life makes them follow. Eternal life makes them hear. Don't be talking about all your brothers that got a different label. If they're God's sheep, they love the shepherd as much as you. And what made you so smart? You don't know any more about God than what he's pleased to reveal to you. You ought to be humble that you know so much and you do so little. See, it's all a gift. It's a gift. Now, the third thing he says in here that, uh, uh, by the way, don't you love this? You won't be condemned. You've crossed over from death to life. I love it. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That verse has bugged me for years. I just, I struggle with John 5 because right now he's talking about a spiritual resurrection. The time is coming, but there's a resurrection that's happening right now. And what is that? The resurrection of Ephesians 2.1, I am going to change and give eternal life to men right now before the resurrection of the body in the future. I am giving eternal life. And what's the theme of this book? This book was written that you might know who Christ is and that by believing in him, you would have eternal life. Who gives you eternal life? He that has the Son has and where would you find that? John what? There's 21 chapters in the gospel, 5 and 1 John 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 John 1. 1 John 5, 12, 13, and you get credit. Okay. 
this an antiphonal church. Kevin and I learned to preach these things together. I pay him an amen. Uh, right here, I tell you the truth. And right now, I'm speaking, and I'm giving men spiritual resurrection, for we are born dead toward God. That's what we often say, well, mankind is sick towards God. We're not sick, we've already died. The sickness was so bad, we've died towards God, and God says, I'll have to resurrect you to even get you so you can hear or believe. Mankind is calamitously lost. Why did you hear his voice and not your buddy? Why you and not your brother and sister in the same family? Why are you the only Christian in your family? You're smarter. God did a work in you that enabled you to hear him, enabled you to follow him. He goes on to say uh, that God has given the son, he repeats from previous, he says he's given him all authority to judge in verse 27 because he is the son of man. Daniel 7, 13 calls him the son of man, the stone hewn out of the mountain without hands that will demolish Gentile world powers. This man will actually set up a kingdom that will take hold of the earth, a prophecy of Messiah. But Christ, it's amazing to me that Christ will be the judge before whom all men, unsaved on one side, saved on the other, will stand. Saved will stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ as he evaluates their life's works. And uh, he will appraise, what did you do since I saved you? And he's going to appraise that. In that judgment, he doesn't judge my person, he judges my works. And uh, he evaluates whether they have worth or whether they're worthless. If it's done for me, if it was done for wrong motives, uh, whatever. Only that which I've done for his glory, in his name, in his strength, will he give a reward and most likely result in a crown, which I understand in Revelation, I get to cast at his feet because he really did it through me. But then the unsaved will come before God in the resurrection and in Revelation 20, says they will stand before the Lord Jesus. When we say God, it's the Lord Jesus. And they will offer all their reasons for why they never did follow him. But what's interesting, if you read Revelation 20, one book is open and a set of books. In this book is the book of life. Their name is not found. Over here is a list of all their life's doings, their sins, maybe their philanthropy, who knows? And based upon this, Christ meets out sentences. But if Revelation 20 tells the whole story, nobody at this trial says anything but him. Nobody talks at the white throne judgment but Christ. 
The books do all the talking. I do not find any record that you've been born again. I have no record that you're my sheep, that you're my child. So that's a big absentee. The book is blank over here. I can't find your name. But over here, I've been recording every sin you've done from the time you were old enough to know you were sinning. I've got a record of everything you've done in secret, what you've done with wrong motives. I've got every bad word, every secret of the heart, everything that you know that maybe nobody else knows about you. And based upon this, according to John 3, you love this list more than you love the judge judging you. For you wouldn't come to me because you wanted to do the things on this list. Men do not come to the light for they love their own darkness, which is their sins. And these are the sins for which you traded me for an eternal banishment. It will not be the father. It will be the son that talks to a Hitler, talks to a Mussolini, that talks to every atheist, every nice person that would not come to the Lord Jesus. This is what you chose over me, and I sentence you to outer darkness, the lake of fire. This is the second death of which there is no reversal. He's the judge. Then he says in verse 28 and 29, I am the resurrection, and I will resurrect. And there are two kinds of resurrection. One pertaining to believers called the resurrection unto life. A second kind of resurrection is the resurrection of the unsaved, and it's unto death the second death. And he says, he, don't marvel that I can give you life now. The time is coming when everything in the grave, listen to what he says, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing, I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Men are not saved because they do good or bad. This is not a resurrection based on merit, but it is the character change that comes in the saved. We're saved by grace, but this grace that saves has saved us unto holiness has saved us unto a life of good works. So he said, those who behave right are my sheep. Those who misbehave toward me aren't my sheep. How are you behaving? How are you behaving? Quit claiming to knowing and living like hell. You're not going to heaven and live like hell. You start living heavenly while you're going to heaven. We've been born again to live a new kind of life. We're the changed people. Are you wallowing? It'd be, Jesus said, let me tell you who the wise man is. He hears these sayings of mine and he does them. The foolish man that built on sand 
hears all the sermons in church, but he never does them. He's a sermon taster, and the sermons may come up on the list. You heard Howard preach June 24th, who my son is, and he's the only one that could save, and you wrote it up as a nice thing, you went to church, but you never believed. Don't tell me you never heard. Don't tell me you never heard. And even those who perish without law, according to Romans, their conscience will be accusing them on this day so that one thing you walk away from the white throne judgment is this. He, the judge, is talking, and the whole world is men that have been tried and found guilty under a rigged jury cannot be quiet. But when the evidence is overwhelming and the judge is before you and he's saying, in all of your choices, I was the one you rejected. I'm the judge. And amazing to me, God is going to resurrect everybody that has ever perished, ever died, in order to go into heaven for eternity. We go to be with the Lord immediately but to have a brand new body for eternity. And even the unsaved will be raised to come and stand before God to be judged and to bear our sentence. One of the most tragic stories that I have read about is Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for Faith, tells about an interview he set up in Toronto, Canada, with a man by the name of William Temple. William Temple met Billy Graham when he was around 33 because they both worked at Youth for Christ. William Temple was considered the better preacher of the two young men. Both of them were being bombarded by liberalism and by saying the Bible could not be the word of God. Henrietta Mears, the feisty little Christian ed, uh, leader down in Southern California, Hollywood Press. She kept working on Billy Graham and telling him the Bible is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And Billy Graham, with all of his doubts, went to Forest Home Camp and was there, and he said he wrestled with God at Forest Home that year, just before the L.A. crusade that made him a household name. And in that wrestling match, he finally abandoned himself and said, I don't know all the answers. I can't eliminate all the tensions, but I must cast myself on a Bible I believe is accurate. I will stake my future on the Word of God. And God gave him a phenomenal crusade in the 50s in the L.A. area. After that, William Temple was convinced by the liberals the Bible was not the Word of God. He only came out with two things. If there is a God, he should be loving, but I find that he's quite unloving if this is his world. And men ought to love one another. He abandoned the faith and began to write books against the faith. And Lee Strobel went up to Toronto to interview him when he was 83 years old. 
dying of Alzheimer's, and wanted an interview. And as he talked with him, he was saying, uh, do you buy the faith? No, the faith is uh, you have to cast in your brains to believe Christianity. What do you think of Billy Graham? Well, I feel sorry for him, though I found him to be the grandest person I ever met, but I feel sorry for his mindless stupidity of still preaching the gospel. And as uh, Lee was interviewing him, a very sick man at the time, he asked him, uh, what did you think of Jesus Christ? He was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. What could anyone say about him except that he was great? Strobel says, you sound like you really care about him. Well, yes. He's the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. You say that with some emotion, Mr. Templeton. Yes, everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. Uh, he cared for the oppressed. He was the greatest human being that ever lived. And so you think the world should emulate him. Oh, my goodness, yes. I've tried, but I've failed. And as Mr. Templeton waited, he said, in my view, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. And when Templeton uttered these words, he did what I never expected. As he began to talk, his voice began to crack, and he said, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He began to sob, and then he left, lifted his left hand to wipe his tears, and he tried to get his composure, and he said, I miss him, I miss him, I miss him, but I can't follow him. Jesus, whether you ever come to know him or not, even his critics say there's never been one like him. God said he's more and a nice man, a philosopher. He is the God-man. He's equal to the Father. He can create. He will judge. He will resurrect. He's the only one that can deliver us from divine penalty, and he's the only one that can give you eternal life. You can be a churchman. You can be here week after week. Some of you may have left him. Some of you thought you knew him, but you walked away. The only proof we'll ever know that you're his is that you're following today. And some of you are here maybe in brokenness, sadness, and the pressures of life make church even sound like a good option on Sunday morning. Maybe someone can talk to my soul. Well, the Lord Jesus is the only one that can heal you 
The philosophy department can't heal you. The psych department can't. And therapy won't do it. He is the only physician of the soul that can make you well for eternity. Only Christ. Only Christ. I beg of you, I beseech you, come to Christ, and he'll give you eternal life. He'll erase judgment. And I have to ask you Christians this. Hear me well. I was reading uh, Psalms 18, and David said, I want to approach God's altar. I'm going to make sure here, bear with me, that I have the right verse. If not, you don't know it anyway. I'll just have to make sure for the second message. Oh, Psalms 43, listen to this. Then will I go to the altar of God. Hear me now. To God, my joy and my delight, I will praise you with a harp, O oh God, my God. And as I was praying yesterday, I just thought, if I wonder how most saints look if they think about, let's say you're going home. When I got married, and I could not wait to go back and see mom and dad. I always loved that. And I never had this image. In my mind, I'd warn my mother so she could bake a pie. I didn't want to catch her off guard. And I told them I never would give up refrigerator rights, married or not. And my father, I always thought going home represented a huge smile, a welcome, special food. And I thought, David is saying here, or Asaph, I can't wait to go to God because he's my joy and my delight. Let me ask you this. Not until you know your sins are forgiven and judgment is passed will you want to run to God because the fear of God will diminish enough that he's become your delight and your joy. Some believers, you can't tell they're believers because they stay guilty all the time because they think it atones. It does not atone. We are not the guilty anymore. We are the forgiven. And we ought to be saying, I'm running to a God with a smile on his face and a delight. Why? Because the Lord Jesus satisfied his outraged holiness against me. It has been dealt with thoroughly, completely, and I need to run to God. I need to run to God. I better let you go. They want to sing, but we're out of time. Let's stand. Our Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus, the life giver, the resurrection and the life, the judge, and the only one that has the power to present me uncondemned before God the Father. What a salvation we've been given in him. Blessed be his name. Blessed be his name. I pray make us witnesses of this great Christ, even as the rest of John discusses. May we be your witnesses until we see him face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.